Good morning. All right, here's a test. Uh, what am I saying? What language is this from? Oh, Korean, huh? Okay. Akemashite omedeto gozaimasu. What do you think that one is? Japanese? Let's see if I can trick you. Nesal kisub kamnai. That's my worst one. No, close. Yeah, it's a good guess because you know where I've been. That was one of our friends who were at this church. Uh, that was Hindi. Hindi, okay. How about Shine uh, Kualo? Chinese. How about Suadi Pimai? There you go. That's Thailand. Feliz Año Nuevo. We want to welcome everybody to the new year, no matter what language you speak. I try to think of, like, is that everybody who speaks a different language at our church? I try to get them all. Uh, if you have another one that you speak regularly, please let me know, and I'll wish you a happy new year in a new, different language. I love to learn that kind of stuff. So good morning, uh, friends. Glad you made it to church this morning. I uh, really hope that you've been interacting with God all morning. One thing I always worry about is sometimes I think people come to church and they think the spiritual part is when the message comes, but if that's the case, then I think you've missed almost the most of the spiritual time. Walking in the door is a spiritual time. Greeting one another a spiritual time. Singing worship and, and hearing about giving and hearing about things that are coming up and connecting in fellowship. Spiritual time. And the message is also part of the spiritual time. But, but I hope you're never waiting for this time to meet God. And this is the time where, where God will finally speak to you, something like that. Because we designed this worship to be a connection between you and God, to have space where you can meet with him. And I, I hope that's taken place. But I also hope it also takes place during the message as well. And so today we're starting a new series through the book of Ephesians. And I think God has a lot to say to each of us uh, this morning and in the next coming weeks. So before we begin, just a bit about Ephesians. Ephesians, unlike many of Apostle Paul's letters, uh, normally Apostle Paul writes to a church and he writes because they're having a particular problem. And he says, oh, I know you've been facing this and so here's the solution to that. Or, or I know that you're dealing with this kind of false teacher and so here's how you navigate that. But in Ephesians, he doesn't do that. Ephesians is written much more generally and it highlights some of the great themes of Christianity, some of the great doctrines of Christianity. There's this uh, complete body of divinity if you look at Ephesians as a whole. In the, in the first chapter, you've got these doctrines of the gospel. And then in the next chapter, this, the experiences of Christians. And, and the final sort of chapters end with instructions on how to live a Christian life. And we're going to look at those things in the next few weeks. A beautiful picture of God's work in the church and the church being the body of believers, each of us. And so we're going to see those things. One particular idea I'd like us to catch this morning is that uh, at the end result of all the spiritual things God does is praise to him. So we're going to notice the conclusion of each truth. So we're going to see passages. There'll be a truth. And the conclusion of each of them, not by my saying, but we'll see it in the word, the conclusion of each of those is praise to God. So whether it's seeing a, a new aspect of God or seeing an aspect of how he sees us, the result of that is praise to him. So let's jump right in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. If not, uh, the verses are always going to be on the screen, as long as our tech doesn't fail. So uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this greeting is a typical greeting of Apostle Paul. They always identify themselves at the beginning of the letter, and they say who they're writing to. And so he says, hey, church at Ephesus, I'm writing to you, and, and uh, I, I want to uh, 
tell you that grace and peace is available to you. That is the standard greeting uh, that Paul gives because he, he knows the importance and he never switches the order around because he knows that grace always precedes peace. You can't have peace in your life unless you have God's goodness and grace in your life first. And so he stays there. It's only in receiving God's grace that we can then walk in peace in life. Now, Paul has a special affinity towards this church at Ephesus. He actually spent three years there. He, uh, he shared the gospel. Some people became Christians. Then he planted the church. And then he actually pastored the church for three years while he was there. This is strange for him because he's an itinerant uh, preacher. He walks around, and his whole job is to plant churches and share the gospel. And the fact that he spent three years in this city at this church is sort of odd for him. The only time he spends three years doing anything else is in prison. Uh, but that's probably not by choice. And so he had been pastor of this church, and so he has this great love for this church. The passage we're going to look at, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, is all a single sentence in Greek. So it's like this biggest, greatest run-on sentence. It's like this long, and then there's a period at the end. Uh, but luckily in English, they broke it up for us, so we don't uh, get overwhelmed by it. So here's our passage for today in Ephesians chapter 1 and 3. It starts just like we said it was going to start. Check it out. Praise be to God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So Paul calls first and foremost, he says, let's just praise God for all the things that he's done. Let's praise God for all the things that we found in Christ Jesus. He calls us to praise the Father because the Father has already blessed us, every believer, with these spiritual blessings. This section describes both the kind and the location of the blessings. He says that they're spiritual blessings. That's far better than a material blessing. A material blessing is like, praise God, I got a hundred bucks or something like that. He says, praise God for the spiritual blessings that he's brought to each believer. Praise God that our blessings are in heavenly places. They're not in the temporal world here. They're not found in, in merely in the material blessings, but rather they're heavenly blessings. They're higher, better, and more secure than any earthly blessing could be. So if our blessing is primarily a spiritual one, what does that mean for us? Well, okay, God, uh, thanks for spiritually blessing us. So spiritual talk is like sort of nebulous. And Paul knows that, and so he's going to delineate in the next couple of sections that we're going to look at today. He's going to say, here are some of the spiritual blessings that are in heaven for you that you actually possess now. And they're, they're, they're real and tangible and available for you. And so we're going to praise God. He says, before we start anything, we're praising God for these spiritual blessings. What do those spiritual blessings look like? And here he goes to delineate them. Paul expands in Ephesians 1.4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. There's one of them. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. There's another one. According to his pleasure and will, to praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us to the one he loves. And this is a really powerful passage, but if you've been in church in any amount of time, you may get caught up by this passage because there's these two words, chose and predestined in here. If you spend any time in church, then chose and predestined, they're sort of trigger words for two different camps of Christianity. And I would say, be careful that you don't get up, caught up in chose and predestined, because that's not the point of the passage. It may be something to talk about, but that's not the, the meat or the heart or the, the realness of this passage. And don't allow those two words to derail you from receiving this passage's truth. 
because it's easy to get caught up in a theological system maybe that you, were lear that you learned or you were taught, and you get hung up on the wrong part of the verse. And if you do, you're going to miss the warm and wonderful, confident relationship that God is offering. If we get sidetracked on a secondary issue, we're going to miss the primary point of the passage. The main point of this section isn't about chosen or predestined. The main point of this section is about being adopted into God's family. Let's be honest. God adopting us is like me going to the pound and picking the ugly, snarly, bad attitude, smelly, filthy, old dog. That's what it's like. We're not worthy of God's love. We're not, we're not the cute, wonderful, beautiful, happy, good puppy. We're, we're horrible and ugly and filthy and nasty. And God says, I love you. And that's the beauty of the passage, that he says, I want you to be my son and daughter, not when you're all clean and perfect, right where you were. I loved you when you were at your very worst, when you were an enemy of me. I called you to be a son or daughter. It's God's grace and goodness is offered to the smelly, angry, ugly people, to all of you and me. And that's powerful. It's, it's, it's safe, it's secure, it's lovely. That's what this passage is offering. That adoption results in us being holy and blameless in his sight. Not because we got there. Not because we earned it. Not because we, by ourselves, can be holy and blameless. Because we can't. Our adoption results in that goodness that comes from God because God, Jesus is good. He gives us the holiness. He gives us the blamelessness. It comes through Jesus, not through our own works. And that's a powerful passage. In love, he freely gives us a place in his family. In love, he freely gives us holiness. In love, he freely removes all blame and shame. It's all freely given to us in Jesus. The reality of being holy and blameless and having the enormous privilege of sonship, the result of that is then praise to God. That's one of our first spiritual blessings, that you get to be called son of God or daughter of God, and then he makes you holy and blameless. He grabs you out of the pan. You don't deserve it. And that's one of the spiritual blessings where you could say, God, I praise you for that. Well, we don't even need any more. That could be it. God, you, you let me into your family, this? You let this into your perfection? God says, yes, I did, because I love you. And that's powerful. So don't get caught up in a secondary theological argument about the word chosen, predestined, to cause you to miss the beauty and the privilege that's in this passage. But wait, there's more. Check out the next section. In him, talking about Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in according with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. So further speaking of the son, he reminds us that the adoption is made possible because Jesus redeemed us through his blood. Now, we should not take a superstitious or mystical view of the blood. It's not like if we could capture a, a drop of the blood, it would be magic. And we can 
cause spiritual life or something like from getting a, a drop of his actual blood or if you, the Shroud of Turin was real and we could get the DNA and we could recreate his blood. Whoa, we could save the world. It's not mystical in that sort of sense. Rather, his real and total payment for the sins of all mankind by his whole person dying on the cross. That's what the, the blood, when the, when the Bible uses the blood, that's what it's talking about, not just like a, a particular drop of molecules. So when we even celebrate communion, it's not that, that there was, ooh, that it was magic blood, but rather it's the full sacrifice of Jesus, and we're remembering that as he gave his life for our life. In this passage, it says redemption. In him we have redemption. Redemption always implies a price being paid in ransom for someone else. Redemption implies someone paying for my freedom, a freedom that's purchased. It actually comes from the Greek word luturu, because I want to be smart, I dropped that on you, which means to set free at receipt of ransom. So redemption actually is that moment where imagine someone was kidnapped, you're going to pay a ransom, where they give the money and they give the person back. Boom. It's that moment, that ransom that's paid, and then boom, you switch and you get that loved one back, and they take the money away. That, that's the picture that it's saying, that the, in him you have that moment where you were redeemed, you were bought back, you were paid for. Sin has taken humanity hostage. Sin had taken each of us hostage. We were captive, and it demanded a payment to let us go. And Jesus pays that payment so that we're free. Now, it's not a small redemption or a small forgiveness run by, won by Jesus on the cross. It's immense. He actually wins freedom for all of humanity, but it is also very intimate and intense. He wins ransom and freedom for you. It's easy to get lost in like, oh, yeah, he died for all of humanity. But it is also quite personal when Jesus says, I died for you. I paid the price for you. I had to give a ransom for you. And why would I give a ransom? And what was that ransom? The ransom was my life and my blood. And I would give it because I love you. Singular and plural. Yes, humanity. But he has each of us in mind as he pays this price. In him we have redemption and nowhere else. There's no other possible redemption outside of Jesus and his redeeming blood. And all this was done, if we look in our passage, because God has a feeling towards you. All this is done because God has a lean toward you. God's looking at you, and he feels a certain way towards you. And if I asked you, how do you think God feels towards you? When he looks at your life, and he looks at your decisions, and he looks at all the things you've done, how do you think God feels about you? What does his lean look like towards you? I think many of us are tempted to say that, that God is leaning towards to smack. Many of us would say that God is disappointed. God is angry at us or frustrated or sad or maybe he's a head shaking at us or a tisk tisk tisk. We often think that that's what God thinks. But the passage here does not say that's what God thinks about you. How does God think about you? How does God look at you? The Bible says God looks at you in love. Not love for your sin or mistakes, but love for you. He has riches of grace 
in mind, and he wants to lavish them upon you. Grace is unmerited favor and a loving interest from God. That's how he feels from you. The Bible says he has this grace, wanting to, not just in a small measure, but a large measure, wanting to give it to you. How does he look at you? He leans in with a loving interest. He watches you carefully because you're precious to him. And he has unmerited favor. You don't deserve it. But he says, I got good stuff for you. I'm looking at you and I love you. I'm looking at you and I want great things for you. That's how God looks at you. Anything else that you think in your mind is not true. Anything else that you think that God doesn't like you, that you think that you're not good enough, you think that you're too ugly or stained or ruined or bad or messed up, or you're not smart enough or you're not good enough or you're not good enough looking, all those other things are lies. If you believe those, then you're not believing the Bible. The Bible says clearly how God leans towards you, and he leans towards you in grace. Unmerited favor, loving interest. Get that through your thick skull. I say to myself over and over. Because I quite easily say the other stuff. I quite easily listen to the lies of the enemy that says, oh, you're no good. Oh, you're such a screw-up. Oh, you're so lazy. You're so stupid. You're so blah, blah, blah. So easy to listen to those and, and think that's the voice of God, but it's not. Riches of grace lavished on you. That's how God sees you. Check out our next part. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. So there's this mystery. God says uh, he revealed the mystery of his will. Well, a mystery in the Bible is something that was hidden but is now known. The mystery was... How the heck are people going to get right with God? The mystery was, how the heck are we going to enter perfection since we're messed up pieces of turd? How are we going to get to perfection? That's the mystery. Is there no way? And he says that mystery has been revealed right now. That mystery, the revelation of the mystery is, ta-da, Jesus. Christ is the way that that happens. His perfection given to you so that you can be perfect in heaven. No, you're not perfect now. No, you're not even beautiful now. No, you might not even need normal now. You're weird. That's okay, he says, but I'll give you my perfection and you'll enter in heaven. That, that's the mystery solved. God's great plan and purpose, which was hidden but now revealed, is Jesus. Christ is the answer. Again, Christ, the redeemer, the unifier, the lavisher of grace, the one who loves you and I. In him, it says in the next section, we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Praise again. Again, the same phraseology as earlier, and again, the same conclusion. We're in God so that we might praise God. Okay, so I think I have to have a quick note on chosen and predestined since this is the second time it came up in our passage. So here's a quick note on that. Uh, if you're new to Christianity, there's a debate in Christianity. How does God uh, let us get into heaven? Before creation of the world, he chose people and he 
predetermined who will go to heaven. One group says he predetermines who goes to heaven based on his own sovereign will or his own desire. That's it. Another group says he predetermines or chooses ahead of time before the creation of the world based on his knowledge, foreknowledge of what people will choose by their free will. That's the two sides. And they debate and they debate and then they actually get in fights with each other for you know, many hundreds of years and, and they fight it out and that's sort of it. So whether chosen or predetermination is based simply on God's desire or sovereign will, or it's based on the foreknowledge of your free will choice, is actually not relevant at all this side of eternity. In fact, both of those thoughts, all they are is an attempt to understand the mind of God and to view things from God's perspective. And, and, and I think that we tread lightly when we start to speculate on the mind of God. When we try to tell God, oh, here's how God decides stuff. When I try to guess how God, in all of his wisdom, figures out the universe, and I say, oh, here's how he does it. I think you've got to be really careful because God's information and wisdom is an ocean and mine is a thimble full of water. And so I can't possibly start to guess at the mind of God, and especially I wouldn't divide with any brother or sister over it. And especially because either way, on our side of the equation, and both sides agree to this, we need to choose him who chose us. No matter if you fall on the Calvin side or the Wesley side, both sides conclude that from our perspective, you have to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So if you think predetermined, well, you still have to say yes to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Free will, you still have to say yes to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And so both of them, from our perspective, have the same conclusion, that each of us have to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And when we do, when we find ourselves in God through Christ, and live our new reality, that is what brings glory to God. We see it in this passage, right? As we were conformed to his will, as we follow after him, as we turn our lives over through Jesus, that might be for the praise of God's glory. And our last section, which is my favorite section of today, it says, and you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This passage is an amazing comfort. And I can't tell it enough. I say it all the time when I talk to new believers and when I talk to anyone who's having doubts in their lives. I, I come back to this passage. When you believed, you were marked with a seal the Holy Spirit stamped you. The moment you said yes to Jesus, your eternity is guaranteed. Not by your future actions or decisions. Not by your obedience. Not by how many prayer meetings you go to. Not by how much Bible you read. Your place in heaven is guaranteed not by you or your actions, but they're guaranteed by God and His actions. Long time ago, when pagers existed, some of you guys know this story about me. When pagers existed, uh, there was a company that offered a lifetime page. So you go in, and uh, normally you pay $6.99 or $4.99. I don't remember exactly what it was, like 5 bucks a month to get your pager service. And I needed a new pager, so I went down to this pager spot, 
it was called uh, Forever Page, I think something like that. And so I went in and they said, you know what? We'll get you that brand new Motorola Boom Pager. And they say, you know what, Sam, what you need is a lifetime page for $800 around there, something like that. I don't remember the exact number. For about $800, you will never have to pay for a monthly fee again for your pager. And I, I did the math. I'm not terrible at math. I was like, so in four, after I pay, normally I would pay monthly four years. I was like, then, then like the rest of my life I'll have free pages. Like this is fantastic. And they say, we guarantee you'll never have to pay another monthly payment. I was like, never? Never! I was like, never! Like, yes! And I was like, pager technology will never go out of style. This thing's the coolest. What could go wrong? Here's my $800. Four months later, the company went bankrupt. I didn't have any pager service, and pagers were still around. The guarantee was terrible because the guarantor was terrible. It was a bad decision based on the promise of someone who I shouldn't have trusted. But they had like 50 branches all throughout America, so I thought I was covered. I wasn't like dumb, dumb. They were like a big pager company. But what matters is not just the guarantee, but the guarantor. And so when we look at this passage, we see both a guarantee and a guarantor. The guarantee is God says you will go to heaven if you believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior. I will put my seal, I will put my guarantee on it. Guarantee is my reality in heaven. The guarantor is God. It's not me. The guarantor of that promise is God. And God doesn't fail. God's not going to go bankrupt. God's not going to... Like, if, it, if I was the guarantor, oh, we're all screwed. We're going, no one's going to heaven. If I had to guarantor my own salvation, not going to make it. I'm going to screw it up. I'm going to mess it up. But if God's the guarantor, then there's no more powerful guarantor than that. And so I love this passage because sometimes in my life, I get doubt. Sometimes in my life, I get worried. Sometimes in my life, I make bad decisions. And I screw up sometimes. But I can always go back to this reality where I say, God, even though I messed up, I know you promised I'll be in heaven. Okay, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get back at this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try again. I'm going to get back up. Because I know what's waiting for me. I know where I'm going. And I know God's promise is to love me even and despite my flaws and to promise that I'll be with him in eternity. And when he says that, when he guarantees my inheritance, that's all good. Then what can the world do to me? I mean, if I can't mess it up and someone can't mess it up for me, then, then why do I have to worry in life? I don't have to worry anymore. I don't have to worry if I, I lose my job or hopefully not, but I don't, don't have to worry if you know, I can't pay my bills all the time or you know, if my kid's got some attitude sometimes. I don't have to worry about that if I make a mistake because God's given me this guarantee. It's it's such this firm place to be. And it's not a firm place so then, woo, I could go wild. It's a firm place so now I know I can, I can live free. I can be different. I can follow him. It doesn't matter what other people think or say. I can follow God fully because he guarantees something. Again, what is the result of the information here? What is the result of this new spiritual reality? How's the passage end? 
to the praise of his glory. So we saw it multiple times. We've seen this phrase four times, five times today this morning. Whether it's adoption to sonship, praise to his glory. Whether it's holy and blameless, praise to his glory. Whether it's the promise of God guaranteeing what's to come, to the praise of his glory. We see that in all of our new spiritual realities, the result is praise to God. And so let's do it together. I'm going to ask that you stand with me and get ready to praise him. I want you to think about in your own heart, praise him for your adoption into sonship or daughtership. Praise him for love, for unmerited favor, for his loving lean towards you of grace, for blamelessness and holiness, for unity, for spiritual blessing in Christ, for the heavenly realm that's guaranteed to you. Would you just take a second right now and in your own, like whisper them out loud. You don't have to shout them. We're not a shouting church that much yet, but maybe someday. But right now, no. You can just whisper it out. Say, God, I, I praise you. And, and for what spiritual blessing? What can you praise God? Say it right now, out loud, and then we're going to praise in one voice, praise to God together.